This week, Ron Ryder, co-founder and CTO of Centra, is with us to discuss being an investor and entrepreneur in data security. Then Ryan Pullen, head of cybersecurity at Stripe OLT, joins us to talk about building the right business culture to manage human error. Finally, in the enterprise security news, funding announcements take a bit of a break. We explore a few new vendors and organizations that have come to our attention recently. Wiz researchers annoy yet another cloud service by pointing out ridiculous vulnerabilities. IBM Cloud is the one this time. Docker Hub has tons of shady stuffs going on. Uh, EU strengthens cybersecurity with new legislation. The U.S. Department of Defense releases zero trust strategy. Microsoft 365 outlawed in the EU. Ransomware makes up the majority of all UK government crisis management meetings. And AI can now tell kids bedtime stories, but do we really want them to? All that and more on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. Don't leave the door open. Secure your APIs with the Curity Identity Server. Curity allows you to centralize identity management policies with a solution developed by an expert team using well-established standards. Curity facilitates scalable security for apps and websites by offering a unique combination of identity and access management with API security. Protect your users, secure apps and websites, manage API access. Start your free trial today at securityweekly.com forward slash Curity. The shift to remote and hybrid work over the past two years has accelerated application development on cloud infrastructure. However, securing these new assets has lagged behind. Qualys CloudView, the next generation of cloud security posture management, delivers an end-to-end multi-cloud security and compliance solution encompassing the entire application lifecycle from build to runtime. CloudView enables enterprises to assess their cloud security and compliance posture, identify risks and gaps, auto-remediate issues, proactively enforce best practices, and prove compliance in audits rapidly and efficiently. Identify your most vulnerable cloud assets by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Qualys. We know that many of you are looking to bolster your security posture with cloud-native app protection and XDR. So if you haven't heard of Upticks, put them on your radar. They offer both cloud and endpoint security in a single solution. Listeners can use Uptix for up to 1,000 assets for a full year for only $1. But hurry, this this offer available only through December 31st at securityweekly.com forward slash Uptix. That's securityweekly.com forward slash U-P-T-Y-C-S. All right. Welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly and happy Antarctica Day. This is episode 298, recorded on Thursday, December 1st, 2022. I'm your host, Adrian Sanabria, and joining me is the master of marketing, the mayor of mayhem, the arch nemesis of chocolate, Tyler Shields. How are you, chocolate? I am all right. Uh, Yeah, thank gosh. I um, have not run into any chocolate lately. There's been no chocolate murders. (laughs) Good to hear. We also have the czar of zero trust, the captain of content, the supply chain whisperer, Katie Teitler. How are you, Katie? 
I'm well. How are you? I'm getting over probably the worst flu I've ever had. Oh, East. Nice. Yeah, I, I I had a fever for seven days. It was it was madness. Um, but I, Did that coincide with Turkey Day? Oh yeah, yeah. I get hit with a fever. Uh, it was a Wednesday afternoon that I realized something was wrong. So yeah, I had to cancel uh, three different Thanksgiving things. Yeah. Oh, that's such and a I was and I was supposed to cook for all three of them. <laughs> so, yeah. That was fun. I, I my kids uh, uh, jumped in and and got some of the cooking done for me, so it wasn't a wasn't a complete loss. Uh, I, I still sent food, but um, <clears throat> finally, also joining us is Sean Metcalf, for whom I do not have a fancy intro yet, uh, but I, I will eventually. Sean, how are you? I'm uh, doing good, thanks. Uh, we, yeah, we'll we'll collaborate on something that's that's just as catchy as the others, and uh, hopefully it'll measure up. Doing doing good. Uh, Post Thanksgiving, uh, recovering, getting back into the swing of things. Great to be back. Thanks. Uh, yes, Tyler, my beard is going awol. That, that's one of the <laughs> things when, when when I was sick, I didn't have a chance to uh, take care of it, and my my whole. My whole facial hair situation is asymmetric <laughs> entirely. Like, I, Adrian, I've got a bald, I, I, like a crop circle over here and a bald spot over here. Yeah. You know, I asked that in a private back channel just so that, you know, it wouldn't call it out publicly. And then you go and like drop the bomb like, nope, yeah, it's AWOL. This it's shit's fine. going crazy. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's been a week. <laughs> it I has, don't mind. clearly, my friend. <laughs> No, I, I, I look at that and I, you know, I, I try and pat it down. I try, it just, I can't get it, let it get longer than a, a certain length or it just starts doing weird stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Red Bull gives you wings, Adrian. Red Bull gives you wings. <clears throat> so, so Antarctica Day, before we launch into this interview, um, went down a rabbit hole with this one. Uh, that was, that was kind of fun. Um, not sure how you want to celebrate, maybe watch a, uh, you know, a, a documentary on uh, on Antarctica, or or maybe Happy Feet, or something like that. Uh, <laughs> but the re- the reason today is Antarctica Day is the original Antarctic Treaty uh, was signed on December first, uh, and, and the treaty basically sets some basic rules like uh, no fighting on Antarctica, uh, no no putting nuclear waste there, no disposing of your trash. Uh, and everyone has to get along and share. So basically, it's like the world's most dangerous, coldest kindergarten environment. Wow. So thought that was interesting. Also, uh, fun fact, uh, it wasn't discovered until 1820, which means we knew the entire solar system, uh, Pluto excluded, sorry, uh, before we knew all the continents. Oh, so I that is that wild. Was, that hadn't occurred to me. You know, yeah, that, no, that, that, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a true, true interesting piece of bar trivia that could be used right there. I like that one. Yeah, yeah, me too. We, we knew the extent of the, for the most part, the extent of the solar system before the extent of our own planet uh, in terms of uh, land mass. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, 90, 90% of the planet's ice is on Antarctica. And that's where all the the uh, evidence of aliens is, according to uh, the Thing and and X Files, and and maybe some other movies. 
All right, uh, quick announcement before we jump into our first uh, interview here. Security Weekly listeners, we need to hear your voices. Leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts and submit a screenshot to our giveaway form for a chance to win a $100 gift card from Hacker Warehouse. This giveaway will be open until the end of the year. We appreciate your honest feedback so we can continue to make great content for our audience. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash giveaway to enter. <clears throat> All right. And looking forward to, to reading those reviews as well. Uh, also, welcome to everybody watching on YouTube. Uh, all of a sudden, our our views on YouTube went from uh, from a couple hundred percent episode to a couple thousand per episode. So uh, That's awesome. yeah, it's pretty pretty awesome to see big jump like well, that. Uh, you know, what we need to do Adrian though is you know if you're on YouTube, you got to smash the like, smash the subscribe, smash the notify buttons, all those notify things. Yeah, the bell. It's a bell. The bell. That's right. <laughs> Hit the bell. Um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Subscribe and, and we'll let you know when this goes live because we do, uh, record live. If you're watching us on, on YouTube at some point and you don't realize that, uh, uh we stream live to both Twitch and YouTube. Uh, we do that 3 PM Eastern every Thursday. All right. And, uh, for our first interview today, <clears throat> uh, you know, the gentleman we have with us, uh, is an investor and an entrepreneur. So that's, that's one of our main topics for today. And, uh, he's also founder of a DSPM, uh, startup, uh, you know, which is a, uh, an area, uh, a new category in cybersecurity that we've been discussing quite a bit. Uh, that investor and entrepreneur is Ron Ryder, co-founder and CTO of Centra. After selling his first company crosswise to Oracle in 2016, Ron made a dozen investments in other cybersecurity startups, and eventually he left Oracle to start his current car company, Centra. Welcome, Ron. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Absolutely, it's um, uh, you know good conversation that that uh, looking forward to. I th I think things are a little feel at least I feel a little bit more stable than they were. Um, you know, I think in the, in the, around the summertime, you know, when the stocks were dropping and everything and, uh, you know, everybody didn't really know where this was going. Not, not that we entirely do at this point either. You know, I think a lot of those valuation drops are, are, are still pretty solid. And then with, um, everything going on in, in the crypto space, um, you know that that doesn't really have a direct impact on us here, but uh, but certainly feels like um, you know I think contributes to the general unease you know that I think might exist around uh, investments and raising money and and, and things like that in general. I, th I think people are maybe clutching uh, uh, things a little bit closer to their chest right now. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think, uh, you know, the crypto space especially is very, very uh, uh, hyped up mostly because it's very uh, speculative. Not a lot of people know how things will, go, will end up there in terms of use cases. And I think that's why we're seeing the most, you know, the, the drop there and, you know, all the companies, BlockFi, Celsius, uh, you know, crashing. Um, you know, it's just because people are scared and pulling their money out. But I think for, you know, cybersecurity and other uh, fintech and other places that uh, other startup categories that uh, have a good round of, um, of use cases and in general 
things that are you know that seem to to be of, of use to the world i think i think now there's a kind of a um some sort of uh incline i would a very a very uh, slight incline in, in optimism around these spaces and and we're now getting a request for investment advice from from uh, twitch viewers <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know if we want to provide any uh you know any investment advice here but uh you know certainly i i, I think um if crypto didn't feel volatile to you before you know like like a risky investment uh you know i i don't know what i can say to convince you but it it definitely is yeah definitely i'm listen i'm a i'm very pessimistic on that that field if, if you want my crypto advice it's you know stick to the things that people want like bitcoin ethereum uh you know the everything else there is is basically uh you know speculations on on other use cases even the cybersecurity startups uh assume that there are going to be use cases on the, the blockchain uh which is why cybersecurity for crypto is also no in, in question right now in terms of how usable it is and how how important it is to the world so it's interesting and I'm, I'm I have a lot of Bitcoin myself by the way and I, I really appreciate the, the technology but I think Bitcoin is is one thing and web 3 is a completely different thing so yeah uh, so Ron uh, you and I have similar backgrounds uh, we both come from the technology world we've both been in cyber most if not all of our career we've had a couple of successful exits and we've become cybersecurity focused angel investors um, one of the things I love to talk with or talk about with uh, technologists such as yourselves, such as yourself, is kind of that crystal ball futures, of course, like, but also investment theses. What gets you excited today? Now, clearly, um, you know, your your current company, Centra, is doing data centric um, cloud security, right? So <clears throat> obviously, you have a uh, investment thesis around that where you're investing your personal time but setting that one aside what what areas of focus in cyber today make you go hey i'm super excited about that that seems like a great growth area uh, that's a great question I, I think naturally everything about the cloud is, is obvious right i think uh, data security is only one thing that's going to change in the cloud but uh everything from uh, uh cspms identity management uh, API security, everything, everything is basically going to change and have its own version of how you do things in the cloud. I think data security is just one of them, but you can say that for, you know, uh, posture management, for, for, uh, identity management, everything, or even for backups, right? Do, do you want to know if your, your whole organization is backed up? So not only for cybersecurity, uh, uh, but also for just about any any IT related use case, I think there's going to be a new version of a startup for the cloud, which will kind of beat the old world completely. And and it's it's interesting to see because um, it it really could potentially destroy a lot of companies and create a lot of new huge companies. I think Wiz is a good example of a company that. Uh, could easily make you know the older companies in the cybersecurity categories kind of you know less relevant, but you know that's just in security. I think in in every uh, category you can see that in the cloud. Um, I, I think that's one thing. Uh, and since I'm you know really into IT DevOps uh, 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 security, I mean that's really where my focus is. But 
I think, you know, um, in terms of, of black, blockchain and, and crypto, I think I mentioned it. I don't think it's a really interesting place to be at right now if you, because mostly the use cases there are unproven. Uh, but definitely I think, you know, 20, the 2020s is definitely a year where, uh, the banks and fintech are going to go through a very big revolution. You can see it with, you know, uh, uh, startups like Melio or uh, a unit or just uh, or uh, Bre Brex, like uh, just a, a bunch of them rapid. They're, they're all like just changing the whole fintech ecosystem because everything is becoming more open and uh, uh, more API based and API driven. Uh, so I think that's 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 an obvious one. So I think basically, you know, I would say the cloud and fintech uh, are the two things that I'm most excited about, and I think are the, the biggest changes in this decade. Yeah, I totally agree. Like specifically for me, I, I have an investment thesis around cybersecurity, every sub segment of cybersecurity being reinvented based off of the transition to cloud. And the fact it's funny because you would have thought that it that cyber would have reinvented by now with much of this transition to cloud starting years ago. But it's just been such a slow boil for cloud transition that cyber has just now started to really catch up maybe in the last two years. Um, I also love a few other a few other ide ideas around like application security, API security being reinvented due to cloud uh, and how we build applications. Um, talk to me a little bit about the founding, and I, I hope I'm not stealing all of Adrian's thunder, but talk to me a little bit the, about the founding of uh, of Centra. I I always find it very interesting to discuss the moment of clarity when a when a founder goes. Yep, that's the one that we want to do. That's what we want to build. Can you tell us a little bit about that moment? Sure. So I think, you know, most of my life, I kind of collected tools to understand you know, the problems that are coming, uh, uh, arising in the world uh, around cybersecurity and, and data. And I think, you know, I've been a cybersecurity practitioner in the Army. I've been a data engineer uh, at Crosswise. Uh, so I have a kind of a good grasp of where the world is going uh, in terms of uh, the cloud. Um, and I, a funny story. So basically what happened to me in 2019, I was uh, in uh, uh, Oracle, right? And I was I was a manager there. And suddenly I got this notice that uh, we there was a, um, a server that was found open to the internet um, that was potentially exposing PII. Um, you know, I'll stop there because I don't want to get in trouble, but, uh, long story short, that was, uh, you know, a big deal. Uh, and I, I, I did notice something about that world and I, I kind of understood that, you know, the, the, there's not much technology nowadays that would be potentially able to even notice that thing, right? Because it's not trivial to understand what is the data vulnerability. Oh, having a server open to the internet with you know um, bad security posture means nothing about the risk to the organization. So without understanding the sensitivity of the data around it, you know it's just a lot of noise. So while once you reduce uh, data and exposure of data with a vulnerable infrastructure or issues around data, then you get a very very small subset, and that's really where the focus should be. And of course, the thesis around CSPMs goes with uh, uh, goes right into the DSPM world, right? What, the reason that the, the, the CSPMs are huge uh, is because posture of security changes in the cloud much more than it used to. And in data, it's even worse because there is 
every day there's more data being collected, more people are accessing the data uh, in, inside the organization. Um, and it's data is being duplicated, more tools, more third-party tools need to process the data. So you send it in and out, you have SaaS services, you have PaaS services. So the data of your organization is basically jumping everywhere and there's nothing that can actually tell you uh, where your data is. So I think it's a, an order of magnitude of a bigger issue than uh, a cloud security posture. But it's kind of the same, you know, the problem is the cloud, right? The, the cloud is just kind of, it's basically putting the organization in a state where they need to put the, the data everywhere. And if they don't do it, that they kind of hurt the potential of the company, right? So everyone does it because they, they're not going to wait for security to yeah. catch up, right? So, so that's right. That's really what my thesis was. And I, and I kind of understood that, you know, since in 2010, it was software is eating the world. Now, 2020, it's data is eating the world. That's data is the most valuable asset today. Data is king. And data is going to be more and more significant. And, and we will see that by, you know, large companies having a very large market share based on the data that they have. So obviously the need for protecting that data, wherever it is, it's going to grow exponentially. Uh, you know, put that with cloud growth, which is just beginning, right? The cloud is like the, the big companies are still not in the cloud. You multiply that uh, by the problem that they're going to, to see. They're not even seeing it. It's like, a, it's, it's like basically seeing a, a train hurtling, you know, 200 miles an hour into a wall and no one's is, is, and seeing it. And, it mm -hmm. and I was kind of, I'm very convinced that this is a huge problem. And we, we were seeing uh, uh, a lot of more, uh, you know, compliance and, and um, a regulation around data breaches and, you know, the understanding that uh, 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 data leaks is happening on a daily basis and, and the price of data leaks is going up. So, you know, we're seeing this this thing and, and nothing seems to stop it. So, and I think it all begins and all starts with knowing where your data is and, and then you can also, you can you can protect it. And there was no tool in on anywhere that could automatically tell you where your sensitive data is. Um, that was 2021. And you know, now, nowadays, I think, you know, DSPM is already becoming a category. I think we kind of, we thought we invented the term DSPM, about June 2021. Nowadays, you know, Gartner knows what DSPM is. Every cybersecurity vendor knows what it is. Every large security vendor is basically looking to build or acquire a company in that space. I think it's the the, the quickest creation of a category uh, that I've seen in in cybersecurity. And I don't know if I you know it's a good thing or a bad thing for me, but it's definitely very stressful. Ron, I, I think your characterization uh, that you said is is accurate. I mean, uh, we're seeing the same thing. For years, companies have been keeping their data in warehouses of some sort, whether that's a SQL database or other on-prem. And now that they have the opportunity to leverage the cloud, be it Azure, AWS, GCP, uh, or many other SaaS services, that data just kind of sprawls everywhere. Sometimes it's categorized, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's encrypted, sometimes it's not. So uh, I've definitely seen with the cloud, we have this this issue that's it's effectively two-pronged. One is the identity side of it, which is what I tend to focus on. The other side is data, which which you're definitely talking about and, and focused on with, with Centra. Um, how do you see a, a solution to this moving forward with the data kind of spread everywhere across multiple cloud vendors in different data storage types, be it a a uh, you know relational graph database or NoSQL database or or SQL or somewhere else, uh, and then how best to handle that different types of data, whether it's categorized, tagged, or or other. 
Um, great question. So I, I think um, the the age of DLP or the concept of having a DLP, I think is kind of over. People realize that you can contain data in the way that you're actually putting a lid on it and looking at, at everything that's going in and out and say, this is okay, this is not okay. In the age of the cloud, um, it's just too expensive to do it and it's impossible to do it. So I think nowadays the, the reality kind of forces us to do something else, which is to map out all the data in, in a way that's not, you know, you're not putting yourself in line with all the, the different types of, you know, you're not putting proxies everywhere and making sure that data is being controlled. That's never going to work. Uh, so, so the approach needs to be knowing where all your data is, even if it's on IS, it's on PaaS, it's on SaaS, everywhere, and being able to control it uh, in some ways, right? So these controls are basically what the organization can use to kind of draw a virtual perimeter around the data. As, as long as it knows about the data and it knows who ha has access to the data and it knows if data has been duplicated, then the organization can have a pretty good idea of what's going on with the data. So yeah, it might mean that, uh, you know, there might be a data leak, uh, but it's only because, you know, it was overprivileged uh, to begin with, but now you know it, right? Uh, you allowed it to be in a position where it could be duplicated um, or you haven't fixed the security issue that is, you know, on, on the uh, storing the data. So so I think that's really where where you, you have to start. And, and I think organizations that have a good idea of where their data is, you know, which is, in the billions or in the petabytes, billions of files in the petabytes. So, so I think it's, it, it, they should be in, in a good uh, uh, position. Of course, they need a tool that will help them do that. And that's why Accenture exists, obviously, uh, because that tool is not only about discovering the data and doing classification and, and the understanding of, of how, how much data is at risk. It's also about helping them remediate the issues um, and that's, you know, a whole different world in data. How do you do data remediation? That's, you know, that's a topic of, on its own. Now, I, I couldn't agree with you more about DLP kind of being the older school approach. And now we need to approach this this uh, issue uh, with new solutions because it is is very different now with, with data being stored in on-prem as well as cloud environments. Uh, you've talked before about a data attack surface. Can you go into a little bit about that and, and how Centra is working towards uh, helping solve that? Of course. So data attack surface uh, is basically um, a measure of how secure your organization is so that when there is some sort of data breach, what are the odds that you know, there will be a, a major data leak that will cause uh, you know, some business malfunction or, 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 or any, any damage to your business? So, uh, and the, you, you can look at it as basically how, what's the, what are the chances of uh, either an insider threat or, or, or someone from the outside uh, to gain access to sensitive data? So the more data that you have that isn't being used right now, you know, puts your data uh, at risk. So that's called what we call shadow data, right? So data that you haven't really known that you're not using anymore. You, you someone may may have forgotten it somewhere. It's like it's sort of abandoned. Um, it puts your your organization at risk because you're not. No one knows about it anymore. So the fact that no one knows about it means that people might there's a bigger chance of people forgetting it. 
which puts your organization more at risk. I think that's just one example. Uh, but of course, any risk factor on data increases your data uh, attack surface. So the more uh, the, the security posture of the infrastructure that holds the data is weak, or, or the more copies you have of sensitive data, or the, the data could be, of course, overprivileged, just like infrastructure could be overprivileged. So if it's overprivileged, then it means that you know there's the data attack for a surface is bigger. So if you put all these things together, you can even construct even some sort of score that could even tell you how uh, what is the probability of of, uh, of you uh, having a data leak if if someone actually manages to to breach the organization. And I think what, another thing that you know our experience kind of tells us is that every organization is going to get breached, right? There's no way you, you might know about it, you might not know about it, but you need to work under the assumption that your organization will get breached which is always why you would want to always minimize the data attack surface as much as you can. Uh, that Sorry, makes Tyler, a lot of sense. You... Thanks for that. Um, with, with, the, uh, with what you said about the, the sensitivity of things and where data is, certainly a lot of this ends up being something that can be related to industry. So obviously healthcare in the U.S. versus healthcare in other, other countries, um, financial systems, again, depending on where it is. Uh, do you have ideas around or, or, or is, does your solution have ideas around how to better protect those specific industry types of data? I mean, DLP was supposed to give us an idea of what certain types of numbers look like, like a credit card number. But that's very specific and, and uh, a sort of identified to a specific use case versus something that needs to be more flexible uh, given uh, the, the cloud world that we're in and the different types of data that we have. Yeah, so I think oh, I'll divide my answer into two. So I think, first of all, uh, um, there is the question of, of tagging your data, right? Understanding uh, where and what type of data it is and then how sensitive it is to your organization. And then there is uh, the world of uh, um, you know, compliance and, and governance, privacy, all of these uh, 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 different aspects of, of how, to, how, how basically uh, the outside is telling you to store your data. So I think Centra, uh, one of the things that we, we try to do autom as automatic as possible is to help the organization uh, with, you know, telling them, you know, what types of data you have, um, you know, we'll, we'll obviously find it automatically, but, but basically, you know, to help the, the organization understand their data. Once, once you have a good understanding of your data, uh, then there's uh, a lot of different uh, uh, risk factors that uh, you would need to, to uh, minimize. So, some of them would be compliance based. So for example, uh, Centra has uh, understanding of what type of data you have in terms of, should it be in EU region uh, or in the US region? Is it, Are these emails supposed to be, uh, uh, they're probably German citizens, they're probably not supposed to be in outside of Germany, right? So that's called data locality. Uh, uh, so these types of, of, uh, um, of um, frameworks are things that every organization needs to uh, understand and and basically uh, uh, the regulations have to be uh, accepted and and, uh, and tools such as Centric can actually make these things uh, much easier for the organization to comply with. Uh, and I think in the world is also going towards a, a place where more and more of these regulations are going to affect and make uh, uh, the, the uh, organization's life much, much harder and without a tool that will automatically help them comply 
with all these different types of new data regulations, then it's going to be very, very hard to hold data. It's just in becoming increasingly hard to hold uh, sensitive data and increasingly uh, uh, complex and, and, and expensive because of these things. Um, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a very big unknown for how, you know, how the world is going to, to develop. I think, you know, it, it, we can see it in, in healthcare data. Healthcare is, in, is, is very hard in terms of regulation. But I think uh, the rest of the categories, you know, financial data, uh, even uh, uh, not only uh, PII, but also even how you, you store your sensitive, uh, your source code, right? That could even be uh, uh, an issue. And I think, I think overall, what I'm basically going to say is that uh, understanding your data and, and uh, complying with all the different types of regulations uh, that, you know, in the future is going to be a, a very, very huge uh, problem that organization will definitely need a lot of help from the outside. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to characterize the the issues that we're seeing, and certainly as as we said, kind of how this thing sprawls. Uh, what are the what's the key value proposition that Centra brings to the table around helping control and get a better feel for this data as well protect as protecting it, um, such as through encryption or something else? So basically, what we do uh, the base the basics of Centra is automatic discovery and classification of data wherever it is. So we scan things like managed data stores, unmanaged data stores and uh, uh, API-based data stores such as S3. Uh, we also do some structuring of the data so we would understand, for example, in unstructured uh, uh, databases such as S3, we would understand the structure and we would even be able to understand uh, kind of the, the distinct data assets and kind of the data flows that uh, create those data assets. Uh, once we have a good idea of, of the type of data that you have wherever it is, um, then we do the classification automatically um, and on top of that, uh, we do a risk assessment. So risk assessment is based on three things. Uh, security posture, which is, you know, whether or not uh, uh, the data is encrypted, uh, um, understanding of whether or not it's uh, backed up, uh, is, it, uh, is there retention rules, uh, is it uh, oh, publicly accessible, is, is, or even we can use external in information from other CSPMs or such, such to understand the infrastructure. Um, we also try to understand if data is being moved around the organization. So, for example, we would know that a specific uh, a piece of data would, would be replicated across uh, two different data stores, two different regions, two different uh, um, anything, basically. Virtually any place that you can, you can uh, replicate the data, we would probably find it. And the last, and I think uh, the most interesting part is, uh, so we have a data authorization graph that basically uh, tells you for every piece of data in your organization, who has access to it? Uh, and being able to understand that picture gives you a lot of understanding of how uh, uh, people inside and outside of your organization have access to sensitive data. For example, uh, if you would you know, have a Datadog uh, user that, will, that can go into your cloud environment and you would know, want to know uh, how what happens if Datadog was, was to be breached, then what type of sensitive information would it have access to it? And that's, that's one of the things that we, we can also uh, provide. So, and basically all of these things which incorporate the risk of the data or the data attack surface, uh, we have an automatic policy uh, engine that can create alerts based on policy violations uh, uh, that uh, we can the, basically, the, the system can trigger automatically. And these things, uh, basically we have a lot of out of the box policies that uh, give you, for example, what I said before, um, um, you know, compliance or security related uh, uh, policies, 
uh, that would just, you know, if you would just install Sentry, it would automatically kind of be covered in that sense. So I'm going to um, take a quick gear shift and get back to uh, a little bit less of the data discussion and a little bit more of the angel investing discussion, because I think you have a very, very cool and very unique, impressive background and impressive track record when it comes to seed investing. Um, for those that don't know, Ron uh, on his LinkedIn has seed investments listed, including major companies such as Exonius, Talon, Cyber, um, uh, Rookout, all sorts of really cool companies. How did you get into the angel investing side of what you do, Ron? And tell me a little bit about where your deal flow come from and comes from, and what some of your investing philosophies might be there. So I think I was very lucky because um, I it, first of all Israel is very small, so it, it's it's very uh, like everyone here knows each other. So um, you know, in terms of of, of uh, opportunities, you kind of have a lot to to uh, to invest in. Uh, but I think wh why I've been lucky is because um, since I've been a, a second timer and you know sold the company, a lot of people uh, want my advice, and and you know I've kind of built my reputation around being this uh, second timer, building a company that can that can help others uh, build and sell their companies, or you know build it to an IPO. Uh, and, and I've been advising a lot of startups, and then I've noticed that it kind of gives me the deal flow to do investments and. You know, and, and you have the money, right, to, to invest because, you know, you sell the company and then you have a lot of, you know, very, very talented uh, people coming and, and, and asking you for advice. And if there's one thing I'm good at is identifying when people are smarter than me. So I've just uh, uh, decided to to take, uh, you know, basically use my my access to uh, very interesting startups and just invest in people who are, I really think are, you know, ex exceptional entrepreneurs that you know would wish that others uh, uh would uh would uh, invest in uh, that would you know everyone would you know want to go into deals such as uh, Guardio or you know Talon or these are very very you know attractive startups that have you know a very very uh significant uh, um uh, potential upside right because uh, that's how it works with you know second timers third timers uh, and I think basically all these companies, such as myself, we kind of look for uh, uh, building out a, a very large angel uh, pool of people that can help uh, basically not only with their, you know, being just an angel investor and, you know, using, using their name, but also with advice. So, so a lot of people, you know, come to me and want me to invest so that I can also help out uh, in the startup um, in, in some sort of way. But I think really it's, it's, um, it's an honor for me because a lot of uh, these startups, you know, want me on their cap table. And for me, it's the best and the easiest type of investment because I I get to be in a, in a place where it's yeah. almost obviously, you know, going to uh, have a good outcome because a lot of people want to invest in some companies. So. Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting. I, I come from a similar background as you. So I've had very similar um results and stories. You know, it's funny, I've been writing, I read an article this morning and I write a, a, a weekly newsletter called the Cyber Why. And inside the Cyber Why, I wrote a paragraph today equating um, early stage seed and angel investing to similar to like the poker game where there's a combination of luck with skill. 
If you had to sit down and say uh, angel investing and seed investing early, early, super early stage investing, would you say it's more luck or more skill or kind of somewhere in the middle that's gotten you the success that you've gotten? Well, I think uh, five or six years ago, uh, I would say maybe luck. But I think nowadays, uh, if you have good access, maybe I'll add a third one, access, right? I think the most significant uh, uh, IRR uh, predictor is access. Uh, because the best of the companies would always want to you know, hire for, uh, raise money from Andreessen Horowitz, right? So obviously, they don't need to work hard to, to identify these because the best of the entrepreneurs will come you know, directly to them. So, I mean, taking that out, uh, I think, you know, over time, you, you do kind of, I mean, it, it would become obviously easier to invest in things in areas that you do understand, and that, which is why I kind of now invest more and more in cyber, because it's much, much easier for me to know what, what would work and what wouldn't work. Uh, and it's the, the question is very simple. Uh, you know, invest in very good entrepreneurs that uh, have the right approach for how to find a problem in cybersecurity. Uh, and there are some areas that I invest in and some areas that I don't invest in. For example, you know, cyber for crypto is something that is, you know, hard for me to, to invest in. So I do have my, my thesis. Um, so hope I was clear. Yeah, no, that's that's. Super interesting. I want to follow up with one other question before I pass it off to some of the other co-hosts here. Um, what in particular do you look for? So it's it's globally stated by pretty much every early stage investor that we invest in people, right? We invest in the people. Obviously, there has to be good technology or at least a good idea, but it's so early stage, it's very difficult to say whether the idea is even going to come to fruition in the right way, whether they're going to get product market fit. So most super early stage investors say, hey, we invest in the people. What do you look for in the people you invest in uh, or in that super early seed stage? So obviously, you know, that they would be, as, you know, smarter than me. That's the most important thing. But um, I think for a CEO, I would say, you know, someone who's very, uh, um, who sees the world as it is, you know, very, very on, you know, on the ground. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, someone who really understands you know, how the world looks like. Someone that I would, if I would have a conversation with him on, you know, what I think about other companies and how the world is going to look like in five years from now, then we kind of see the same things, right? Um, and, and from a technical co-founder, you know, that's much, much easier for me to to assess. I think, first of all, it's very easy for me to see that someone really is a, a strong technical founder. But I think technical founders um, also have to be very, very good people leaders, and, you know, a lot of times I've, I've been seeing companies that uh, don't have that trait for technical founders. Uh, so if you, you know, if you're a person that uh, uh, people kind of want to work for, if you, if you, you know, you're a person that, you know, it's kind of the, the first thing that comes out of, of, of an interaction with you is, you know, I want to work for you or, or you seem like a, an amazing leader or someone who would be, for, you know, standing in front of a crowd of 100 people and speaking to them and, and telling them about, you know, how, how the company is doing. If that makes sense, uh, then I would definitely invest. Um, it's kind of an aura around the people that, you know, it's kind of easy to, to spot those leaders. And I think that's the most important uh, um, people who are, you know, they're, uh, they're uh, appreciated, their uh, uh, opinions are appreciated, 
Um, and and that, that's basically, I think, the most important trait that I always look for. That That's awesome insights, Ron. Thank you for all that. All right. And we, we've got to go ahead and wrap here. But uh, Ron, thank you so much for joining us on Enterprise Security Weekly today and, and sharing um, all the insights on, on both the DSPM side of things and the investment side of things. Uh, this is really great. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. All right. And stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to talk building the right business culture to manage human error with Ryan Poland from Stripe OLT. The cybersecurity landscape is full of single solution providers, making it easy for unexpected cyber threats to sneak through the cracks. That's why Fortra is creating a stronger, simpler strategy for protection, one that increases your security maturity while decreasing the operational burden that comes with it. This is all possible thanks to Fortra's best-in-class portfolio and deep bench of expert problem solvers. Fortra's integrated, scalable solutions help customers face their toughest challenges with confidence. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash Fortra. Customers want fast and frictionless digital experiences, yet also expect protection against breaches, privacy violations, and fraud. Drive engagement by optimizing security and convenience to attract and retain customers. Use the PingOne cloud platform to build, test, and optimize digital experiences. The no-code orchestration engine weaves together authentication, user management, and MFA, all of which can enhance security, drive engagement, and boost revenues. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash ping identity to learn more. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Do you have a specific guest or topic that you want us to cover in one of the shows? Submit your questions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. We review suggestions monthly and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. All right, for our next interview, Today, Ryan Pullen joins us uh, to talk about building the right business culture to manage human error. Ryan is head of cybersecurity at Stripe OLT, is experienced in pen testing, incident response, and OSINT, and is a recent TEDx speaker. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thank you very much for having me. How, how was that TEDx process? Uh, it, it seems <laughs> like, I mean, even, even the TEDx ones, like, I, I just imagine it's a very long and stressful process to prep for that. It's, it's really interesting because I, I did it in my hometown. And so it wasn't any traveling or anything like that, which I had to account for, which was, which was really good. Um, but there was certainly a lot of revisions because for the first time, I wasn't talking to an audience who was interested in the topic. It had to be more generalized. And so I find myself more specifically looking at generalistic examples, which, you know, the type of SMS campaigns that come out this time of year, protecting people, keeping people safe. But I talked about different narratives. And so it gave the audience a bit more of an understanding of how everyone can be impacted by cybercrime. And so, for example, one scenario, I was uh, the responder understanding the impact potentially on some employees and some businesses and then in a very much a different perspective i was the target and so how it how people targeted me and found some information about me it wasn't actually targeted per se it was more of a phone scam but it was very sophisticated and so the preparation was 
it was the most important part for me because I wanted to make sure that I could communicate the challenges that I see day in, day out, but also target the masses from those kind of drive-by campaigns as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I watched it yesterday and I, I, I thought it was pretty good because it's um I think it's interesting to see that from different perspectives because you, you talked about uh, uh, doing pretexting as well, you know, which is uh, an interesting thing in pen testing because uh, back when I pen tested, uh, we had certain people in, in the firm uh, that were willing to do social engineering and then certain ones that weren't because they, they, it, it, uh, it actually conflicted with their personal ethics. Uh, where even if they were hired to lie to the employees of, of a customer, they weren't comfortable doing that. So, so we had very specific people uh, that, that excelled and were comfortable doing, doing different, uh, different things. It's, it's very interesting. We, uh, in a few different occasions, we've used people who are not trained penetration testers for, uh, for these jobs. For example, uh, your sales team are often your most proficient on the phones and more comfortable uh, facing objections and things like that. And when you're really assessing high security facilities and places who you're automatically going to meet that resistance, if you haven't necessarily got that technical objective in mind, it can allow you to be more dynamic. And so I completely understand that that ethical boundary. And to be honest, I I don't do any of those kind of engagements anymore to be honest i'm much more business centric with uh leading culture and and growth of the business but that was an engagement where i i was the person that was going to try and obtain access the the first time mainly with just a genuine reason but i couldn't disclose the reason to the person behind the desk and therefore mm -hmm. i was playing on their more vulnerable side because i had traveled uh, three hours and I was there for that meeting and I couldn't touch any of the data without being in the premise and all of these sorts of things. And so it is an inner conflict for sure. But if you're doing it for the right purposes and then you're able to provide the improvements, it gives you that sense of being able to make these improvements so someone can't do it for malicious purposes. Yeah, and and to uh, to dive into the conversation here, I feel like my my co-hosts are are kind of rearing to go on this topic. Uh, everybody seems excited about it, um, but uh, certainly for me personally, one one of my irritations is the the idea that the the humans are the weakest link is, is something that we hear all the time, and, and every time I hear that, I think like 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 ha ha you know that's only possible if we don't realize that humans are a part of our business you know because we we understand humans are fallible humans are going to make mistakes you know so for for them to be the weakest link we would have to not prepare at all you know for for humans being part of this uh, like it's why the world around us has has things like traffic lights and crosswalks it's why flying cars aren't aren't a thing you know, we can barely handle them on, on the ground, much less <laughs> in the air with an extra dimension thrown in. So it's, it's uh, you know, it seems madness to me to say, ah, you know, there's just, you know, what can you do? You know, uh, people are going to click links. And if, if your entire organization is, is just a, a single employee clicking a link away from, from devastation, I, I feel like you, you've designed things very, very wrong.
you know, so that's, that's kind of why I was excited about this conversation because it gets into, you know, gets past that point of, okay, yes, you know, humans are going to make mistakes. We can try to train them, you know, but, uh, you know, we know we're never going to hit 100%. So, so what can we do about our culture uh, to actually, uh, you know, encourage people to make less mistakes, make sure it's okay to make mistakes? Because there's certainly another direction that you can go here, a much sharper, um, more worrying direction. And I've seen many companies do it where you fail a phishing test uh, and you get written up. You fail too many phishing tests and people are firing their employees for not being good at, you know, stopping phishing. It's, it's quite remarkable, to be honest, that, that shift in that direction, because you mentioned a really interesting point around the flying cars and things like that. Tesla is one of the you know most public hypergrowth organizations out there, and they're literally trying to reduce the amount of fatalities on the road through system automation and the processing power that, that can exist. Okay, that's, that's a controversial topic, whether we're there or not, and those sorts of things. But you're absolutely right. The human is a part of the kill chain. Your employees uh, can be more empathetic and more understanding, and therefore that can be exploited, right? That's exactly what I was talking about previously. And so if you were taking the approach around the performance-based, if you click so many, you, you are punished via these methods, that's only going to instill fear, and that's only going to instill more issues to really exist within your your economy. So, you know, Ron was talking about it in the previous segment, and I, I thought he hit the nail on the head around, you know, your intelligent individuals. You don't want to assess uh, a fish on its ability to climb a tree, for example. And so, if you assess everybody on their ability to be able to detect uh, a phishing email. The, the people, you know, interested in this community are highly, you know, are more likely based on your standardized drive-by phishing emails to do so than someone who maybe works in manufacturing or finance or healthcare or something in that domain where it's not technologically focused. And so I think the, the, the transition in the culture from my perspective and something because I feel very passionately about this, because I've seen that exact example take place where the, the phishing campaign was so targeted, they were already on the inside. They were just trying to get a better foothold from a true employee and they chose to punish this individual, right? Now, business pressures, needing to make an example, things like that put to a side, that's an incredibly difficult position for that individual to be in because at that time, you can do all of the training in the world that you like on a certain day with certain circumstances, with certain conversations. Most people who work in the security industry would be able to create a fishing, you know, a successful fish, I believe. And so where I think organizations should shift should be the mean time to, re to respond and the mean time to detect when something has actually gone wrong. And that's by enabling a culture of almost acceptance and knowing that something's going to happen wrong, ha go wrong one day. Now, that's exactly what Ron said in the previous segment. Something's going to go wrong at some point. The better you are prepared, the, the more available and the readier you are to actually respond to this. And so, for example, if you have a culture where if you click a phishing email and you're more likely to be punished than supported, 
I think is illogical for people to expect people to try and you know report those things further upstream and do the right thing and help prevent that next stage ransom attack with the mo they're gonna hide it they're gonna hide it right exactly exactly and so if you if you're in a position where you know the security team or you know the it team and you don't you're not the kind of person that picks up the phone and shouts at them because something's broken on your device there are people too if you become a more conclusive and supportive ecosystem your results can be quite drastic to be honest and that also goes from consultancy functions managed services and everything associated if they feel like i may have done something wrong here i'd rather check as opposed to i think i clicked something i don't know the impact but i know i if i've clicked that i won't get a bonus at the end of the year i'm probably going to roll the dice and take my chances and so it's quite it's quite a uh, hanging in the balance uh, position for that individual when if you go so hard in the other direction now it might not work at all scales but it certainly works you know to some capacity within you know sub twenty thousand seats for sure because you're able then to prevent things on a more consistent basis and actually detect those issues you know re revoke mfa sessions enforce password resets the simple basic security controls before that more nefarious individuals got their hands on something if they've done the classic Microsoft 365 password reset phishing campaign, you know, failed for that. Right. And, and with the, uh, with the thesis there out of the way, Katie, I think you had an interesting question about um, folks that get confused about the term culture, about what culture is. Yeah. I, I've been thinking a lot about this lately and it was triggered a little bit yesterday when there was that story about a French employee who was fired for not fitting into culture. This is this is sort of tangentially related, but you know, talking about culture and what fit means, you know, I guess uh, just to set a, a baseline, what when you talk about culture, what does that mean to you? To, to me personally, I think you need to align with your company values and the company goal. And I think that itself can create a culture of uh, the, the, a similar ecosystem where people are in the same boat, moving in the same direction. And you get toxic individuals and toxic, um, you know, self-centered agendas at times, which can, can try to, you know, break that apart or, or have an ulterior motive. New ideas are very important, but there's different ways in which you can Kind of endorse them and so to me a positive working culture is where you're there to support that that common goal and not punish people for things that can occur at a moment's notice where there's so many different variables and it's not just a we've told you a thousand times that this particular thing factually may occur and you've done it again now, there's different scales to all of this, but for me, that's that's the nuts and bolts of what a culture should entail, and it should be like-minded people on a similar goal, uh, working collaboratively. I think where a lot of companies get caught up in the term culture and fit is mistaking people who are working towards a 
company goal, a financial goal, a product goal, a mission goal with the idea of like-minded thinking, i.e. having clicks of people or having people who all get along on a personal level as if it's more of a social club than a work environment. And I've certainly seen in my own life and with many friends and colleagues in the industries where there is almost like an in crowd at organizations. And that's not really why people should be hired. And that's not why, certainly not why they should be rewarded. That was part of the issue with this Frenchman who just won a major lawsuit against his company for being fired for not participating in these more social types of things. And I think there is an overlap um, or, or not an overlap, but there's, um, there can be a tendency to misconstrue what culture means with almost like this herd mentality. And it's one thing to have people who are very mission oriented and goal oriented and have a dedication to the company and doing their best. And it's, it's a very different thing when you have people who are in this herd mentality because there is a tendency for people to be, they want to fit in on a social level. They want to fit in on a personal level. And often those people get rewarded more than the people who will stand up and say, hold on a minute. They are seen as dissenters. They are seen as argumentative instead of somebody who's maybe just asking the company or their manager or their colleagues to think about something from a different perspective. Because a couple of years ago, we were talking very, very much about the idea of diversity and diversity of thought, not just diversity in terms of, you know, what's your gender breakdown? What's your, you know, country breakdown? What's your age breakdown? What's your, you know, all, all of those different personal demographic pieces of information, but diversity of thought and having people who will push boundaries to make companies, to make products and services better. Now there seems to be a little bit of a reversion to this idea of, hey, let's everybody fit in. Um, and I do certainly think that there are instances, again, that I've personally seen and that I've had my friends and colleagues also talk about where it's hey, you have to fit in and be like everybody else. And that's not, in my personal opinion, what culture should be about. So how, I know that was a very long diatribe, but how do you differentiate between that? How do you adapt your culture? How do you make sure that your culture allows for individuality? Individuality in thought, individuality in work practices and habits, you know, you don't want to encourage people to click links and put the company in danger. You certainly don't want to encourage people to just go completely rogue on projects. But how do you encourage that individuality of thought, work ethic, work habits without going over to the line of we all must act the same and talk the same and and be the same for us to have a culture that is ubiquitous, that is seamless, that is, you know, you know, whatever culture it is, if it's, you know, Exonius or Tenchi or, or Jupiter One or whatever the culture, uh, whatever the company may be. I, th I think the, that's a really hard narrative to, 
to kind of summarize, but for, from my perspective with the organization, I actually pride myself on hiring people from different backgrounds, because I think if you hire people who have done the same uh, master's degree or been to the same college and done the same curriculum, and they're there to do the same job, you're very much hiring from a centered pool, which in some industries works great, for example, Harvard Law and the like. But when you're presented with different challenges every single day, I think it's really important to enable people to use their backgrounds and use their ulterior skill sets to be able to utilize that when speaking to uh, frustrated individuals, uh, people who don't know left from right because they're in an instant scenario. And so we've, we've hired people who have worked in um, healthcare. We've worked, we've hired people who have been, you know, manual laborers, uh, you know, your standard masters educated university path, uh, people from military backgrounds, intelligence communities, and those sorts of things. And so with, with that itself, people bring lots of different ideas of way in doing things. But when it comes to hiring the right culture in particular, uh, one of my favorite books is called The Ideal Team Player by Patrick Lencioni. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but in, in the book, it's not, it's not a very long book, but they assess people based on three criteria. Um, and those criteria are humble, hungry, and smart. And humble being able to be able to empathetic with people. And if you find something that's happened wrong, be able to support that individual in correcting the challenge and making sure it doesn't happen again by actually being there for that person, not naming and shaming and highlighting the issue because, uh, that doesn't support necessarily the right behaviors. Uh, smart being understanding human interaction and social economics, basically, being able to have those conversations with different people, understanding not everybody speaks the same uh, technological language or even the same dialect at all. And then having that hunger for the same mission, which is where I said about the boat leading in the same direction. And so that direction can take multiple different paths, but if the common goal is there, I think it allows people to move quite efficiently in the same direction. And so when you hire based on those criteria, and it's very much born out of the, the Simon Sinek performance versus trust relationship model. And so you could have a very high performer of low trust, which would be a toxic leader and a toxic individual is, is how he says it when he, when he spent time with the Navy SEALs, or you could have a high performer, sorry, a medium performer of high trust, who is a good leader, who is then able to facilitate those challenges and be able to be more um, transitional in the problem solving capacity. And so when it comes to culture at, at scale, that's very much down to the line management. And I have experienced the same things as you with um, being pressured to fit in at times, but also to follow the same status quo with this, is how we've always done it. Now, I think if you look at the way leadership now moves with people like Elon Musk, it's it's actually endorsed to challenge things in the in the appropriate ways. Whether you know you you agree with that or not is is something different. But the, some of the best uh, technological advancements, uh, improvements in design, customer beneficiaries has come from the team because we we enable them to have the creativity and ability to be able to bring these ideas forward, and and we try it and we put it into practice. And for example, that's because they see the challenges that are you know, being faced on a daily basis. And so I think 
from my perspective, that's how we do it internally within my organization. But we also try to do that with the security teams that we operate with. So we're, we, we have a, you know, multiple managed service arms and within the security operations arm, we spend time with the internal IT team to make sure that we understand exactly the challenges they're facing to make sure that we're supporting and understanding their direction and where they want to get to. Because there is a fine balance with culture and the ways in which, you know, outliers are seen and things like that. But I think that that comes down to the root cause of the, are they there to do the job or are they there for a social economics, you know, being a part of a, a friendship group and things like that. And so it's definitely multidimensional, but using the those those three pillars for hiring your your team and asking the right questions at the start, I think it allows you to have a bit more of an understanding around uh, your values as an organization and where you're trying to get to. Thank you. Hi Ryan. Uh Thanks very much for the for the book recommendation. I agree 100% with the hiring people with different backgrounds. I think that's that's critical to really ensure that, like you said, not everyone has the same approach to the same problem. You want to have uh, d diversity in thought specifically to come up with better solutions. We've done a lot of things in the past. They might not have worked, so let's move on to something new. Uh, you talked about hiring the right individual rather than the CV or resume, as we call it in the U.S. How do you feel we can improve the hiring process to both hire better and ensure a win-win between the organization and the new hire? And then I have a quick follow-up about culture after you answer that one. I, I, I love that question so much. Um, my my journey into cybersecurity was irregular. I, I went to university or college um, to start with, but I didn't I didn't stay the course. I didn't see it through to the end because I wasn't seeing the benefit that I believed was appropriate. And the reason why I got my foot in the door and I worked my way up and, and you know moved multiple different companies, but eventually ended up where I am now, is because effectively someone took a chance on me based on uh, my work ethic and what I felt passionate about, which was protecting people at the root cause effectively. And when when I'm hiring people, what what I want to assess is what's what's your core value and why do you actually want to work in cybersecurity? Because to some it's a sexy industry and there's fast paced and things like that. But if you're not, I don't believe if you're not in it for the right reasons, it's an incredibly difficult industry to survive in, really, because it's so fast paced. And the com the, the context in which information is transmitted is, is quite vast. And the challenges you'll face on a daily basis can be both very intense, but also, you know, quite mundane with the, the amount of data that, that exists. And so I take that on because someone took a chance on me. And so I don't necessarily look at the ways in which people have got certain certifications or the, the right university course or college degree or a uh, number of years of experience. Because I, I hired someone who has been with my team for a year, I think yesterday, and this individual on paper probably wouldn't have gotten interviews in your traditional capacity. Yet what this person did was spend four, day, four hours a day you know, studying and researching because that was his passion. And so if you then unlock that door for that individual and you start paying them a salary and they become on a hyper growth trajectory, 
they're very unlikely to let you down if if you can enable them to grow in the right way. And, you know, I think when you enable that kind of level of acceptance and understanding and put faith into these people, they grow at probably, I don't know, four times the speed of someone who has come through the traditional pathway because these individuals have had to, you know, work for that opportunity and just be given a chance. We've done that a multitude of times. Now it doesn't work for every organization and it doesn't work for every industry for sure. But I think hiring the right person, less so what their piece of paper says they can do because anyone can lie on that piece of paper realistically, both protects the employee because they want to work for their passion and their goal based on it being the right person and right seat for that, for that journey. But if it's not right, then there's things like probation periods to protect both sides anyway, if it's not the right fit. And so for me, we've hired lots of people who have come from um, military leaving backgrounds because they approach problems in a different way. They are used to diverse environments where they're used to instant changing in circumstances. And one of the most important qualities that I try to understand is when something's not going right, how do you support your team? Are you the kind of people who's going to support your team when the back's up against the wall or do you throw in the towel? And you, you can easily see that when you interview people based on why they want to be a part of a, a security operations team, for example, to protect organizations or people who work in healthcare and keep those people safe because it's that sense of morality where they're able to achieve those things as a as a collective because it's very hard to do that by yourself and so that when that team ethic becomes ingrained in your culture it can be really quite powerful and I think that's why I choose not to hire based on the specifics of a, a resume in this instance and understand more about the individual and give them an opportunity. Uh, absolutely. Th thank you for that. I, I think that the, your your key point there very much aligns with with my thinking as well. That you you know the resume is the first step or the first uh, part of this, but really we want to look at uh, beyond just that CV, beyond just that resume, and see what else is there. Um, my follow on is around uh, since the company should support the employees as part of their culture, how should this culture or and and does this culture change or adapt as the company grows from say twenty five to fifty hundred or more people? And additionally, how does hiring potentially change or how should the hiring process change as it grows from under a hundred people to five hundred even a thousand people? Again, that that scaling question is is. A fantastic question because going going from that 25 to 50 to 100 to 250 seat organization there is naturally going to be a shift in culture because your leaders within the business then uh, have greater responsibility and autonomy and, and that's the way it should be but choosing the right people to make sure they are consistent with that is a collaborative effort across the board I believe and so the business itself should make sure the mission statement collectively is your underlying message. And if so, so what I don't mean we are trying to hit this revenue goal. I mean, we are trying to protect people from being targeted by people who have nefarious and, you know, 
circumstances or purposes behind what they're trying to achieve. And if everybody's aligned to try and do good, for example, then you, you start with a baseline where everyone then is on board with that idea and that plan. But going through those motions of hiring huge tranches of individuals and making sure they are adopted into that culture starts with your foundation. If you're building on brick instead of sand, you're, you're more likely to adopt those new hires into that same journey because it can become very infectious. And when it becomes hyper effective as well and people start to exceed their goals and their personal targets because of the support around them, it becomes a, a self-sustaining path of travel almost. And it becomes hyper-effective and, and it's not based on a single individual to make sure that that can, continues because everyone around you is aligned to that same goal. When, when you get into the, into the thousands, it becomes more business unit focused where the challenges are represented in different ways for sure. But I think the underlying mentality and attitude will allow you to protect things in more dynamic capacities, whether you're an internal security team, whether you're to be to be quite frank, in any department, this this can be adopted in the in the same ways. Yeah, so so there you know, a bit of a I don't know if it's an elephant in a room, but uh you know, just kind of thinking through how the whole hiring process works and thinking about this this culture conversation that, that, that we're talking about, like one of the issues that I've observed is, is that a, a lot of us, a, a lot of it is us either lying to ourselves or lying to each other or kind of a mix of both, right? Like you hire somebody, they say, yeah, I'm going to be a great employee, um, never going to do any kind of quiet quitting or, or like, you know, tell you that I'm working and, and do something else instead. Or, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm great. I don't have any flaws. <laughs> you know, my, 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 my personal problem is I work too hard, all that, you know, and then on the flip side, you know, the employer's like, yeah, we're a great em employer. Uh, you know, here's our company values. You know, of course the company values are, I don't know if they're automatically generated by some machine somewhere or, you know, HR just kind of pulls them out of a hatter, you know, I have actually been a, a part of that process for a few startups of coming up with the, with the values for the company. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I, sometimes they're almost humorous, you know, how much the values are actually, um, you know, in real life flipped from, from what the company says, says that they are. Um, so, you know, and, and, and then there's, you know, especially when, when there's an HR involved, you know, there, there's all this this culture that's that's kind of manufactured that, you know, like every, you know, we're going to have Taco Tuesdays in the cafeteria and, you know, they just try and manufacture all these good feelings and things like that. And then, you know, the things that actually matter, you know, like like how to respond to, you know, an employee failing a phishing test or something like that, um, you know, or, or uh like there's this Twitter account that I'm following now that that's hilarious. And it, it's basically like insider things, you know, but, but um, um, I don't know how to describe it, but uh, it, it's basically examples of, of these kinds of things of, of like the company saying one thing 
and then an employee, uh, you know, I- I examples of the company doing the exact opposite of, of what they say. You know, I guess it's, a, it's the culture equivalent of uh, we take uh, uh, your security and privacy of your data very seriously. You know, every company who's ever been breached has had that that page on, on their web page. So with, with, with that in mind, you know, I... I don't, I don't understand how we work past that, though, because at the same time, am I going to join your company if you tell me, yeah, you know, here's our company values, but, you know, don't get in Phil's way when he throws a temper tantrum. He tends to throw chairs, you know, just uh, just just make sure you keep clear of him when that happens. Like that tends to happen quietly in small groups later, like you, you get filled in on on what the actual company culture is once you're already part of the company and. You know, may, maybe you're thinking uh, uh, th- this could have been a mistake. So, sorry, that's a lot to dump on you right there. But um, <clears throat> I don't know. Is is there a more straightforward, open way to tackle that? Or does that have to be kind of this behind the scenes, you know, thing that, that you work out one-on-one with employees? I think it's, it's really interesting listening to you say some of those things because – you start to reflect on instances and experiences you've had yourself, right? But I think the biggest differential that doesn't happen very much is people enabling their employees and their teams to equate to change. You know, it's still very hierarchical in in lots of organizations. But when you empower your teams to actually be able to make those changes, they feel empowered, which therefore equates to a positive working environment, underlying culture improves and all of those sorts of things and your staff retention goes up because they feel like, oh, I'm having an impact and I'm having, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm having an impact by turning up to work and I feel like a part of something. And so I think that is a large part of where people and organizations can stunt growth and create more insular directions for example like you just said where people feel they say one thing and they do another if the team are saying they're going to do one thing because of x y and z and they have the company backing or the the line management backing it becomes really really powerful and so like you said it's a, it's quite a lot to dissect but the underlying tonality of that it comes down to trust and it comes down to the reason why people are actually there, I believe. And that may be naive, but I think if people are actually there for the right reason, cybersecurity is is a very fast-paced culture like oh sorry, very fast-paced industry, like I said. And I think if you if you're in a position to be able to affect an impact change for for the better of everyone around you, it allows for that to be adopted within the culture itself because it's bigger than a single individual. Like you said, it's one person throwing chairs, etc. It becomes much more of an, a demonstrable direction within the, the way that the company operates. Things like Taco Tuesdays and things like that, okay, that's great, that's cherry on top stuff. But like you said, at the end of the day, it's more around how people are treated and how people are able to come into work and operate in a safe environment and be able to be effective in what they want to achieve as a collective or individually, well, it's both. And so 
that that scale of things is where things can become challenging because you have people with different uh, ideas and ulterior motives. But I think at the same time, that's a huge part of it in in where you can go grow as a company because. I, I, I've just said hiring people from different backgrounds allows you to achieve the same thing in in seventy different ways. Some are going to be more effective than others, and so by being able to make those uh, statements and those presentations, it allows you to, for you to be effective and enable everybody to work together. Gotcha. Uh, Sean, Tyler, anything? Anything else for, for Ryan? I, I think uh, probably the, the best part that I've heard around the, this, this discussion is really employee focused, uh, especially in the cyber field where we tend to focus on blinky, bots, blinky boxes and, and tools and things like that. Really investing in the people, giving them the resources. Uh, Ryan, I heard you say something around, you know, identifying what that interest is that the person has, be it research or something else, and empowering them to be able to go in that direction. And that can really help the organization go in interesting ways that may not necessarily directly relate to the bottom line, but can help improve things overall, whether it's people feel empowered, uh, such as uh, along the lines of what you were talking about, Ryan, is, is making sure that people feel like they are part of something and they are helping to grow it. Um, I think that's what matters. And I hopefully I captured that, Ryan, in, in the way that you said it. Uh, absolutely. And I think uh, Gary Vaynerchuk um, talks about understanding what makes people tick because not everybody's going to be motivated by the same thing. And neither should they, because you don't hire everybody in the company for the same motivation because other people are there to be very admin focused to not let process fall down. Other people are very results driven and are more dynamic in the way that they are going to try and get to that end goal. Both very different perspectives, motivated by different things. For example, from my perspective, I'm motivated by uh, longevity for my team and employees and everything that encapsulates that. But not everybody in the business is motivated by that same goal because everyone's working on different career trajectories and people see things in different ways. It's, it's the human nature, isn't it? And so, for example, what's, what may be attractive to me may not be attractive to my team, and therefore I can't assess them based on what I believe I would do necessarily. It becomes much more focused around, is, that, is there a common goal and why they want to be in here, which is exactly what you said. And again, that, that comes from a, another Simon Sinek book, to be honest, called Start With Why, and it, it aligns you to be more understanding around the focus in which people want to achieve those things. And if people want to keep people safe effectively within a security operations perspective, or say you're a penetration tester and working in an offensive security and you want to identify the problems before somebody else does and be able to help people fix it, that's that's taking that box in your underlying um, focus as, a, as an individual. Then you need to make sure your, you know, the company culture is right and your salary expectations and working environment and it works for you personally and your home life and everything else. And so if you can understand that as a person instead of a here's the job, it's a it's a it's a different way of looking at things. 
it's more difficult to hire potentially, but I think the retention is much, much higher where people end up staying and your tenure becomes a lot more um, long term. Well said, Ryan. And that is uh, Start With Why by Simon Sinek. And The Ideal Team Player, I think, was the other book that you mentioned by Patrick Lencioni. Yeah, that's the one. All right. Good stuff. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us on Enterprise Security Weekly today. This has been great. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you. I think somewhat cathartic as well. All right, we'll be right back in a few moments with the uh, weekly enterprise news. Attacks can't be prevented, but they can be stopped. Modern cyber attackers have already made it inside your network, but you have the upper hand. Find and eradicate threats with extra hop network detection and response and shut them out before real damage is done. Learn the advanced techniques attackers are using and how extra hop stops them with a live attack simulation. Register at securityweekly.com forward slash extra hop. That's extra H-O-P. Managing and protecting the world's grueling number of endpoints, enabling Tanium's customers to see, control, and protect every endpoint everywhere. Tanium's mission is to provide certainty in uncertain times with the industry's only converged endpoint management. Trusted by the U.S. military and the majority of the Fortune 100, Tanium helps manage and protect nearly 30 million endpoints. Tanium, the power of certainty. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Tanium to learn more. When it comes to cybersecurity, the biggest threats are the ones you never see coming. SecureWorks detects and responds to cyber attackers' ever-changing tactics. We come armed with Tagus, a security analytics platform designed to recognize attacks and stop them before they do harm. SecureWorks, defending every corner of cyberspace. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash SecureWorks. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Follow us on Twitter for live stream reminders, highlighted clips, memes, and more. You can find us at Sec Weekly. Uh, same thing, I think, on Mastodon also, which we are playing with right now, in case Twitter ha- has an unfortunate accident. Uh, <laughs> and now for the Enterprise Security Weekly news, <laughs> check out securityweekly.com forward slash ESW298 if you want to check out the stories that we're going to be talking about today and read my notes. <clears throat> and not a whole lot of funding this week. Uh, we've got three items. Uh, two of those uh, just popped up uh, pretty recently. I, I guess it's understandable uh, people don't want to uh, announce financing during uh, Thanksgiving week. Uh, a lot of U.S.-based companies in in cybersecurity, a lot of U.S.-based uh, investors as well. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, see, <clears throat> two kind of mid-size Series B, a 31 million uh, Series B for Sphere. And um, I, I had kind of a hard time figuring out what they do. To be to be honest, they said identity mm. hygiene. It's clearly around identity, um, yeah. but I, I don't so, I don't know how. So it's really interesting that there there is a 
I'm seeing it in multiple deals, um, multiple pitches. I'm getting this at this point as an investor. Um, I feel like an identity-based security is about to make a leap. Um, I've also seen it in some of the uh, new stuff put out by Gartner in the 2022 trends. As we move into 2023, identity-based cybersecurity is becoming a new hot hot item. Um, I feel like Sphere is is doing something around that. Um, not exactly sure specifically what they're doing, but identity hygiene is kind of becoming a hot topic that I'm seeing a lot of funding money go towards. I I can't speak specifically for Sphere because, again, it's one of those scenarios where um, it's jargon soup by a, you know, potentially mediocre agency for the press release. So it's tough to know for sure. And I, they're 13 years old and only in a Series B, so I, I suspect it was maybe one of these situations where they, they were more of a uh, services company and, and are now building a product and, and raising funds to build that product, but but I'm just guessing. Yeah, you know, ForgePoint, they're not dummies, right? ForgePoint does uh, great investments, and so... No, there's got to be something there. There's got to be some reason. Also, a $35 million B is tiny compared to what it was in the old days, right? So either this is the new sizing or maybe it's yeah. the right sizing for a company that's growing in a healthy way. So it's interesting. We always used to poo-poo the um, uh, kind of the uh, companies that were uh, services, pro-serve-based companies that are then converting to product, right? Because, okay, you bootstrapped your company with ProServe. Now you're trying to get into products so you can get a better multiple and eventually sell the company, right? That's kind of the game plan. But what's interesting now is almost like a ProServe-based function could be a much healthier-based company than some of the traditional uh, high flyers in VC, given what matters to investors now. What matters to investors is uh, um, efficient use of funds resulting in hopefully profitable companies, right? The more traditional version of what makes a company good. And so it's going to be neat to see whether some of these pro-serve to uh, product plays, not whether Sphere is that or not, I'm not sure, but some of these pro-serve to product conversions become more of a hot button with the investment community. You think maybe that can be problematic though? Like, um, you know, having two sides of the business there, you know, that, uh, you know, maybe some competition with each other or, uh, you know, difficulty focusing on on building the product uh, or, or, or vice versa. I mean, it, it's, it's certainly nice to have the services to, to be able to back the product. You know, you can do implementation stuff. You can, um, <clears throat> you know, you, you don't have to worry about uh, initial growth uh, nearly as much because you already have revenue coming in. Uh, you know, certainly taking some money, creates some of that pressure that you would have yeah. if that's the only thing you were doing, I would expect. But also, you know, I, I, I wonder if uh, in some ways it can make it harder having services as well, it's, especially it's like question. really well-established services. Yeah, it's yeah, a great a few different ways to do it too. Traditionally, I'll, I'll hand it to you when I'm done. The Traditionally, the pro-serve side of the business has gotten a very low multiple. So as soon as you take in invested capital into like a venture to, to push forward product, they want much higher growth, much higher return, things like that. And as a business, it's very difficult to deliver high return and kind of slow healthy growth at the same time, which is what makes it a little bit more difficult. But if we're seeing a massive compression in venture-backed valuations and expectations on growth rates to be a more healthy growth rate, 
it may begin to unify these two to make it a easier version of building a business. But you're right. I think there's all sorts of difficulties that come in play when you have a pro serve business that also does products. Um, I just don't think it's as dangerous as it was prior to the macroeconomic collapse. So over to you, Sean, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think there's a few different ways to do it and do it smartly. Certainly, if a company has grown doing certain services that they then are able to transition over to a product and they've leveraged that knowledge and experience and existing customer base in order to expand, uh, that's one way that seems like it could be successful. If they have transitioned from their services into this product, that's another interesting way. And then shifting over to, as I believe Adrian was talking about, using pro services to help deploy and support and, and continue that. Uh, that's pretty interesting also. But I, I don't know, Tyler, what do you think about those two different approaches? Which do you think is more successful or does it or does it really matter or depend on the, the uh, goal of the company and what the product is actually doing? It's all goal dependent. I don't think it matters too much. I think it's a function of of doing what's going to give you the healthy returns as a business that are going to then throw off the correct amount of capital to the investors, or if there's no investors, the correct amount of capital to you as the as the founder of the company, right? I think there's a million different ways to build businesses. Literally, there's as many different ways as, as there are ideas. And it's just a function of matching the market, the product, the expectations of growth, the expectations of invested return, and the potential for the business. And things get difficult when those gears in the complex system become out of whack with each other, right? Um, And so, yeah, you have to look at the entirety of that complex system and understand it and manage it as one big system. So the next one here gets some special bonus points for me, uh, Pangea, because they use a lot of uh, Jurassic Park uh, examples on on their website. Their little, uh, you know, kind of animated GIF uh, demos. Yeah, there's some Dennis Nedry in there, uh, which I which I appreciate it, and, and I appreciate the. Uh, I don't know how unique this is for security. I, I think you see this a lot in dev app, DevOps and on the IT side of things, on the dev side of things. But I, I haven't seen many pure play security companies with this kind of, uh, you know, like like we're building these um, easily integratable uh, API-based uh, security functions that you can build into your applications, which is what uh, Pangea does. They're trying to call it secure platform as a service, but I'm not a big fan of that because that that could be anything, right? You know, like Palo Alto Prisma could be a secure platform as a service. You know, it's it's just a bit too nebulous for me, but then, you know, I I don't know what else you call this. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has seen more specific names for this kind of, this kind of service. Huh. If only it were that easy. There's so much here, so much different things. Like the website's a little, um, I'm on the purpose page in particular, and it's a little bit difficult to grok everything that is that is there as a purpose or as a product. Um, I'm on, oh, I, I see it's an SPA actually. It's a single page. So the whole thing is just tough to grok. I, I wish they had some clarity on message because I think fundamentally, if I distill out and say, hey, is there a platform we can use to build our applications that are going to create applications in a secure manner from the ground up? I love that in theory as an idea. Um, I have no idea based on the difficulty to understand their website if they can deliver that, but in theory, I like it. It's really not that. It's specific functions. 
it's like, okay, if you need a secure audit log, they have that. If you need to be able to redact information on your app, they have a widget for that. You know, so it's almost like functions well, that you're buying. Right, which if you group those fun functions, I would consider them a platform that you can build secure applications on top of. But you are correct, right? Functionally, it's a grouping of, of functions. No pun intended, I guess. Um, it, it, does, it does actually fit another investment thesis I have, which is focusing on API-driven security, which I really like the concept of. Because at the end of the day, if, if, if we can use APIs to secure our system in automated ways, similar to the way we've... Uh, you know, taking functions and move those off into third-party SaaS applications that are essentially APIs. If the more we can move into APIs, the more we can kind of distribute the workload amongst technologies or vendors or clouds. Things get a lot easier to implement implement over time. Is now the right time for it? Am I too early? I don't know. But if if that is what they're doing is distributing security functionality via APIs, I like it in theory. I like the idea. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just um, they're very specific application building blocks, basically. Yeah. Like, like, like there's nothing here that's going to tell you that your application is insecure or anything like that. It's like, well, we've, we've got to pull in files from our customers. So we, we need some way to check those files and make sure that, you know, there, there's nothing malicious in the files that that uh, customers are uploading into our app. So, so they have a widget for that, basically. Well. Yeah, I mean, if we think about, like, why is Apple uh, iPhones more, why don't we see massive iPhone attacks, right? Sure, there's some flaws, I get it, and things, things or are Android. Yeah. there. Or Android, for that matter, but mobile in general. It's because all of the security stuff is actively built in in a, in a reasonable way. It's not perfect. There's no perfection yeah. there. But what if we could do something similar for traditional compute, right? And Absolutely. And to do that, you'd have to distribute that workload via APIs, which is what they're seeming to try to do. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and that's something um, I remember talking to Josh Corman about that years and years ago when he was working on his rugged software thing and mm -hmm. uh, DevOps with uh, with Gene and, and Kim. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, good stuff. <laughs> Sorry, Spaff and Gene Kim. Gene, Gene Kim is one person. Sorry. <laughs> no, made it made him sound like two people. I'm still not a hundred percent, folks. Yeah, it, for those of you that can't tell, Adrian is working at like perfect capacity today. He's he's at his top notch <laughs> self. Ah, <laughs> uh, all right. Let's um. So Palo Alto Networks finally did a a deal here. We've seen several vendors, uh, CrowdStrike, Palo Alto. Uh, I think maybe even Sentinel One. You know, there there've been a few of these uh, really big players that have kind of replaced the McAfee's and the Symantec's that have been struggling to find a buy. And it sounds like sounds like it's all been around getting people, you know, getting getting the acquiree and the acquirer to to uh, agree on a valuation. Which I guess nobody knows what the valuations are supposed to be anymore. So yeah. Uh, a lot of these deals have, have kind of fallen apart because, uh, yeah, I can only assume the acquirer is uh, too low and the acquiree is too high and they're just not finding yeah. a middle ground that they can agree yeah, on. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that's exactly the problem we're having. I would have expected a much higher quantity of acquisitions to have occurred at this point in cyber. But I think it's exactly what you're describing. The overheated investment world created um, – 
egos, founder egos, investor egos that are high. Um, investor egos are probably not the big bigger problem because the investors, that's financial math, right? They, they, they do specific financial math here that says this is profitable, not profitable, take write-downs, don't take write-downs, et cetera. So it's easier for them to say, okay, I'm going to take these write-downs because in the future, we're going to grow uh, results in these other ways. But I think founders and, and you know, founders hold the majority of equity in these situations uh, through certain stages through like, let's say, A or B. Um, those acquisitions come with founders who are like, hey, a year ago, I was worth 800, 900 million. Now the most I can get is 300. Oh no! Like no, I'm just going to hold if that's the case. And it's funny, you know. I think <laughs> at the end of the day, it's like, hey, you can you can pocket 300 million. You own 30 percent. You can pocket 60 million of that or 90 yeah. million of that in your own pocket. Or uh, you know, you can hold on and try to make 600 million, and you'll pocket 180 million in your pocket. And I always tell founders, look, either way, you're still flying private, buddy. What difference does it make? Yeah. You know. <laughs> Um, and I think some of these some of these early stage founders are going to have a day of reckoning where they have to come down to reality of what the current market uh, for their businesses are. It's no longer as high as it once was. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. seen a few specifically uh, kind of shun some acquisition uh, uh, offers, and, and I remember kind of kind of shaking my head to myself, thinking uh, you might regret that later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The the crush is real, folks. The crush is real. Yeah, the the number of uh, asks uh, to the dance that you get as as you grow larger and take more money uh, tends tends to go down pretty pretty drastically, pretty quickly. Yep. <clears throat> um. So there's this uh, Tyler. You want to talk about the building cyber collective here? I think you're yeah. you're more uh, aware of it, or, or not. We're we're both aware of it, but uh, I, I think you're a bit deeper into it than I am. Yeah, I wish I could say I've I've dove dived, uh, gotten super in depth with it. I did read through the majority of the main the main content. I like what I see. I like the concept. It's um uh it's put on by a gentleman named Ross, and I'm going to mutilate his last name. So Ross, if you're listening, I apologize. Ross Hallelujah Hallelujah. Um, he's had a product at Lima Charlie, but he also does a lot of, uh, writing. He's, he, um, uh, puts out a newsletter, which I love. And of course, the minute I say it, I can't remember the name of the newsletter, but I subscribe to his newsletter. I love it. He puts out a lot of great content. Um, and he started something that is, is he's calling the building cyber collective, which is intended to bring together, um, advisors, investors, and founders in new uh, new cyber companies. Um, basically, if you sign up as an advisor, you commit to providing a certain level of, of service, four hours of free consulting for startups. Um, and then you can figure out where that takes you from there, right? And here's the interesting thing. I It's exactly how I got into cyber investing. I started just doing advisor roles where I'd meet a founder and say, hey, what can I do to help you? And I didn't put a time limit on it, but in essence, I would do an hour a week or an hour a month or a couple hours a month. And eventually they came back and said, hey, can you help us do X, Y, Z? We'll give you an advisor role or we'll move you into an investor role, whatever those cases may be. And that's exactly what he's trying to foster is that uh, karma-based, hey, let's help each other build new cyber companies. And then we will all collectively reap the rewards. So it's kind of like a... Um, accelerator meets um you know an advisor studio or something i really like the idea yeah me too 
Me too. Oh, yes. And uh, you're right. Venture Insecurity is the name of his um, his newsletter. Thank you, Adrian. Yep. I'm here for you. Yeah, I was looking clearly. it up while you were talking. <laughs> <clears throat> A prelude I found very, very interesting. Um, they have a community tier, and it's a product that you download and install, and it looks like it's a breach and attack simulation product. So they generate uh, these different scenarios, these different tests that you can run in your environment to test your different security controls, which is something I, I've been in love with for a long time. I worked for an attack uh, simulation, uh, a, a breach and attack simulation vendor at one point. Um, haven't had a chance to check this out before, but it sounds really exciting. Yeah, you and know, it's called um, Prelude Orchestrator or Operator. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> no, this this is this website's a little confusing as well. But um, you know, it's uh, I believe in the I think I believe in the space too. Another one of my friends recently started a similar concept. Um, you know, uh, so I've been talking a lot about cloud cloud security. We talked about it in the first segment, how cloud security is rapidly disrupting all of cyber. And I think in some ways, or the transition to cloud, not cloud security, but the transition to cloud is disrupting all of cyber. And I think that's what this really is, because we've had continuous security testing kind of from a DAST approach to web websites for a long time now, right? You say, here's my here's my domain, continue to, to scan it for um, network and for, for app attacks or whatever. We've had that for a while. But how does it shift or change when we are using APIs, when we are using cloud-native workloads, when we're using cloud-native functions? That's the fundamental difference where I think some of these newer companies like Prelude and uh, the new company that... Um, uh, the new company that I'm talking about, uh, um, which I don't want to say quite yet because he's still in, in stealth, they're taking a new approach to it doesn't matter how you design the applications. It doesn't matter how you build them in a true cloud-native modern way. We will be able to continually assess that universe, be it through uh, asset management and configuration states, be it through dynamic continuous dynamic testing, be it through maybe SAST in a, some kind of unique SAST approach. Um I think there's some reinvention here that I'm pretty excited about, actually. AppSec meets cloud. Well, and, and this isn't so much about vulnerability management. You know, a, a lot of this, uh, I, I think for me, one of the most valuable um, use cases of this is, you know, are my tools even sending alerts to the right places? You know, th this is, we're going to simulate the attack. You know, do people actually know that the attack happened? You know, and this is something Ryan was talking about is is uh, one of the improvements you know they're looking for in in terms of uh, you know the the human angle is um, knowing that an attack happened sooner and and quicker and being able to respond to it sooner. Well, you can't do that if your tools are misconfigured and you're not getting an alert when an attack happens. You know we know tools have gaps, uh, things that they're gonna miss. and uh, to me, the whole, you know, bass space should be about, hey, is, is, is my stuff actually turned on? Is it working? Is it monitoring the right things? You know, we, we hear these horror stories of, uh, oh, the IDS was plugged into the wrong span port or the span port was misconfigured. Yeah. You know, it wasn't seeing the right traffic. Um, <clears throat> you know, that I, I love to use examples from Equifax, and there was one example there where uh, the emerging threats team wrote a snort rule. Uh, for for the for the struts vulnerability, 
Then they handed it off to the uh, the SecOps team, and the SecOps team, uh, you know, threw it on the IDS. Neither team tested that start rule to see if it worked. It yeah. didn't work. Yeah, that's a yeah, great point wonder. about gaps there, Adrian, because the, the issue that we've seen, I mean, we do, do security assessments all the time with, with large companies and small, and one of the things that we see consistently is companies and organizations not understanding where those gaps are, where those blind spots are, as far as alerting in, in, in the events. First of all, it, are the events getting logged on the system that matter? Uh, are the is the event flow from those systems flowing into a central logging system, be it a sim or something else? And then what is the output of that? Uh, is there something that's an intelligent alert to alert the SOC operators and or other people so that they are able to take action for it? Because there's several different parts of that chain. And the final one should be, okay, if this alert happens, this is the action that needs to take place, whether that's an incident that, that gets spun up, uh, remediation, or is there some sort of automatic or manual action that has to occur around that? Uh, from what I've seen, most enterprises are not prepared for the attacks that are happening today or even have appropriate visibility around it. So something that could help test it more easily uh, and give them that insight, I, I think, is a good thing. Yeah, I, I agree completely. But what I was getting at, because I totally agree, like that's a very important aspect of what they're building. Um, it's it's kind of the extension of Baz into a more modern environment, though, that excites me. So they have this concept of an operator, which is a free production-ready infrastructure for continuously testing your systems. What does testing your systems mean? Like, there's lots of different ways to test your systems. And if the system design has changed from traditional Baz to this modern uh, you know, universe so that a new BAS has to be created. I think it has to follow both things. I, has, I think it has to be able to understand the new style infrastructures to do continuous tests that are pertinent to that model for the result of what you guys are talking about, which is to make sure that the stuff on the backside is properly configured right. Right. Yeah. And traditionally, BAS has been all about uh, detecting lateral movement. Though I, I imagine it's it's uh, it's moved beyond that by now. It has to. If it doesn't, it'll be left behind because lateral movement in what regard? Lateral movement in a traditional data center is very, very di different than lateral movement yeah. in a modern deployment. And, and, and all very agent-based. And this one also does appear to be agent-based, where yeah. you have to install agents to actually... Uh, run the tests, and some of them require agents on both ends because one of the features is uh, like the agent on the other end will, you know, confirm, yes, I saw the attack, you know, so it tends to be more for like segmentation testing and stuff like that, which I, I think is a little bit less useful. You know, I think it's uh, yeah. more important to use this to test your actual uh, security operations team. Your, your <laughs> is your sock all the money you're spending on your sock any use at all or are they going to miss every attack that this thing throws out so prelude folks if you see this or hear this please reach out to me i want a demo i'd love to hear more about it so i can talk more intelligently about your market super cool idea yeah, they do have a i forget where it was but there is a good uh video somewhere where, where yeah, they and they have they a blog too feed.prelude.org is the great blog Good stuff. Uh, moving on, uh, Revelstoke Soar looks like a Tynes competitor. Another zero-code kind of drag-and-drop, build your if-this-then-that uh, security automation scenarios. And really nice animated GIF on the front page there. I, I love it when they do that, when you can just like stare at that animated GIF, 
be like, okay, yeah, I, I, I get the core of what you do here. <laughs> yes, absolutely fantastic. No, I um, yeah, it's funny if you scroll down. He's got they've got a uh, a big square. Um, Sor is dead. Long live Sor, which is uh. You know how many times I've declared markets dead over the last 15 years of analyzing markets? They've all died and been reinvented a thousand times. But um, well, that, that no, was so, our job. It yeah. was our job to declare things dead. Yeah, exactly. This, this is, is dead. This is dead. <laughs> we were analysts. The network exactly. is the computer, right? But, you know, in, in our defense, though, Adrian, we were. And that's exactly why we were declaring stuff dead. But at the same time, like, you know, stuff gets reinvented constantly all these markets are getting reinvented to handle new things like if we just take the cloud stuff that i was talking about cloud is causing every cyber piece to be reinvented apis being the motivating factor of how applications work today is causing soar to be reinvented because now you can automate huge things with the response side of it which is why i love times i love um um uh, all of those companies that are doing this kind of sock automation um explosion now is it a new sore i don't care what you call it leave it to the analysts to declare a market dead and declare this the new sore whatever the case may be i think at the end of the day automation is coming from the fact that we are now api derived as a security vendor community as well as how we build all of our applications today so i think i think the concept is really cool i hope they are very successful in what they're doing yeah yeah it's just you know a lot of security products haven't really done a very good job with usability and SOAR V1 oh. is definitely in that camp. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we, we had, uh, I forget the guy's last name, but Ryan from Brooks running, uh, who we've had oh, yeah. on, on a show a couple of times. He was talking about like with one of the V1 SOAR vendors, uh, you know, it took six months what he was able to do with a V2 vendor in like a couple hours, you know? So it was just, uh, night and day, the, the difference in the amount of effort you need to put in to, to have something usefully automated. Yeah. This is going to be a massive space. I don't know who wins it. There's a lot of players in it, but it's going to be a massive space. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. And it's um, <clears throat> and the nice thing is with most of these, um, you can build libraries. So you can build it once, share it with other people, you know, obviously without your credentials and stuff like that plugged into your your workflow and, you know, Tynes calls them stories. You know, I, I, I don't know what this company calls them. Sometimes they're recipes, sometimes they're workflows. But yeah. uh, I love that people can take their creativity and share it. And there's a library where you can go and get ideas for, for how to be more productive. Yep. I'm a big fan. Me too. <clears throat> and we were talking about DSPM earlier. I, I think uh, uh, in our first interview, Ron even mentioned Wiz uh, as uh, you know, a big up and comer here. And sure enough, they're they're in his space. You know, they're they're the the first uh, non peer play DSPM. You know, so I, I guess we we should expect uh, the LaceWorks and the Orcas to either acquire their way in or or build. DSPM in-house uh, in the near future. They whiz is in everybody's also, space. This is also another example of a category becoming redefined, right? To 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 a degree, this is just a an evolution of some of the data security things that we've built in the past. Some of which worked, some of which didn't. 
Um, but this is an adaptation for modern workplaces. And, you know, it's yet to be determined how well this works. Um, but it is just a reinvention. Yep. Yeah, it's it's uh, so I, I tend to throw V2 on the end of a lot of these things, you know, SOAR V2, DLP V2. I mean, obviously, it's uh, you, you can't directly compare it to DLP because the way we were implementing DLP, where we were implementing it, you know, is, is, is very different from how DSPM is doing it today. But the, ultimately, the goal is still the same. It's where's my data? What kind of data is it? how you know how how would i classify it and uh what's it doing where it's wh where is it going um and uh where do i have problems you know is is it in places that it shouldn't be and it's really really tough problem to solve and uh, and with each year it gets harder and harder as we encrypt in in more and more layers um yeah it's just really tough Data is a tough one. You can't you can't install an agent on data. <laughs> you know. Hmm. <clears throat> All right. So there, number nine here. Um, this uh, this actually just came out uh, this morning. Came off embargo this morning. Um, but yet another case where researchers were able to pull back the curtain and access thing. You know multi-tenant uh, break on the IBM's cloud here, access other customers, uh, you know, with, with kind of a chain of different things that they found in this case. I, I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing, but it's uh, uh, not particularly unique in that it's yet another um, uh, tenancy break. Uh, but they're trying to say it's unique, I think, because the method was using something that was in IBM's was using Postgres SQL. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I fully understood uh, what they were saying was unique about it either, but uh, certainly uh, not a great thing, but of course, all of these, when we hear about them, they're already fixed, you know? So that's, I guess, a good thing. You don't have yeah, to wait for people to patch when it's uh, somebody's cloud. At, at least it all gets patched at once, right? Yeah, so it's interesting because, you know, I've been around breaking stuff for 20 years, right? I was a cybersecurity consultant doing research back in the early 2000s, right? Finding zero day. Back then, you find something, you were lucky to pop, you know, one one binary, and then you had to figure out how to get in and, and execute the, the flaw into the binary. Then we moved into web, and it was like, okay, you pop one website, you know, the, the massive risk of pop one, grab everything didn't exist. Now, like with cloud, literally you get a, you pop a cloud, you can be jumping from customer to customer to customer and compromise the universe, right? So that's the downside. The upside is when we went to fix a flaw, we had to contact each individual vendor to get things fixed and it took forever. And how do you distribute repairs to binaries to, you know, 5,000 customers? We're also in a situation now where it's significantly less time to repair problems, right? Because of a vulnerability found in IBM Cloud, for example, they contact IBM Cloud, 
Hopefully nobody else knows about it, although that's an argument we can have on a later date. But, you know, at the end of the day, IBM hopefully can patch that quickly and all customers are fixed fast, right? So it's got an upside and a downside when cloud compromises or, or CSP compromises come around. Um, but I don't see why anybody would research, research anything other than cloud or CSP compromises because that's where the value really is today. You're right. It is so big. I mean, there was issues that were talked about in the past year or so about Azure. I mean, the Cosmos DB, uh, when you have this multi-tenant type structure where a database stores information about lots of different companies and lots of organizations' data, going after that platform is the way to get to something. Now, it's kind of like dropping onto a, uh, almost like dropping into a, a virtual uh, host in, uh, that that hosts a number of instances because you don't necessarily know what you're going to get behind it, but you could get something pretty big as an attacker, and that could be very interesting. Uh, my favorite one is still where uh, if you were on Azure um, for 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 a time, you if you knew the ID of somebody's disk, you could mount that disk. Oh my! Any <laughs> any disk on Azure was, was just wide open if you knew uh -huh. the actual like object ID for the disk. Oh wow! Well, one of my or coworkers they, figured out a way to get uh, Amazon AWS log files to go to his system or his tenant versus others, and if oh, no. uh, most of the organizations that were on there, I believe that's been fixed. Uh, if they didn't have it configured to explicitly define the log file location or destination, then there was a way that you could actually end up getting it uh, accidentally. So yeah, clouds are pretty interesting from a security perspective. Nobody puts sensitive stuff in log files, though, so that's that's cool. No, that that's totally safe. But Adrian, do you remember if those disk IDs were predictable or sequential? Uh, I I don't know if they're predictable, but they certainly weren't kept secret. You know, so yeah. so like a lot of people would go, you know, to forums and stuff like that, and poster logs and stuff like that, which would have, oh. you know. Microsoft, uh, so Azure has object IDs for everything. Your your yeah. user account has an object ID. Disk has object ID. Instances do. Um, so they they definitely weren't treated as sensitive, and Microsoft didn't tell you to treat them as sensitive. So yeah, it was uh, not designed intentionally that way. It was just it was one of those things that was overlooked. You know, it would it would just mount anybody's disk if you threw that in there. So I mean. I'm sure there's enough disks on there. You could fat finger a few things and and just load something, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it was at least semi-predictable, maybe not fully predictable, but still massive problem. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if they were sequential, uh, even, even worse. Yeah. Uh, speaking of even worse, uh, number 13, um, you know... It, I say the EU, but I mean, specifically, this is uh, Germany coming out and basically saying, after two years of negotiations with Microsoft, the joint committee of the German Federal Data Protection Authority and 17 state regulators published a devastating statement that essentially says that organizations currently cannot use Microsoft 365 in a lawful way under the GDPR. Wow. This which is a is very interesting one. Uh, first of all, because Germany has their own instance effectively of Azure, um, which is mm -hmm. structured that way. There's there's a few separate Azures in the world. Uh, one is U.S. GovCloud. Uh, there's commercial, obviously. There's China. And there's Germany. 
Uh, those are the, the key ones that I can think of off the top of my head. So Germany has their own instance of Azure. So the perspective of saying that it's not GDPR compliant is interesting also. Uh, there's the EU GDPR. Uh, UK has done some additions to it. I imagine Germany has some some changes as well, though I haven't seen that recently. Uh, but that's a very interesting statement um, from that perspective, because obviously GDPR is pretty big in the EU. EU. The PDF is in German, uh, but uh, I don't know about uh, Google Translate, but I, I use DeepL is the translation tool that I use, and you can pass uh, a PDF through it, and it, that's how I read uh, the PDF here. So, yeah, be interesting to see the fallout from that. I'm sure Microsoft will have to respond to that. <clears throat> Uh, let's see. I think it's time to go to squirrel stories. Let's do it. Squirrel it up. So my first squirrel story here is, again, coming back to looking at the interesting and potentially horrible uh, things going on in the world of, of AI and uh, automatically generated content. <clears throat> and... Um, yeah, so there are not one. I only linked one of them here, uh, but there are two, at least two um, projects that will automatically generate stories for kids. Uh, and, and they're not just like open source GitHub, like here, here's a, a thing I threw together. They have pricing. Yeah, so starting at, at nine bucks, you can create uh, 10 stories. Beautiful illustrations, they say, and, and and this is the part. This is the reason I included this one. Is is they're using Dolly? <clears throat> like I didn't even check on this. Like you can tell if you've ever seen anybody use Dolly two, it butchers faces. Uh, it, the faces it turns out look like the survivors of uh, uh, <laughs> of stepping on landmines, like like horrific stuff. They look horrific. It, lo it looks like if somebody. It looks like if somebody carved a body out of butter and then stuck it in the microwave for three seconds. Look at Sophia's garden. That's what I'm looking at right now. It's disturbing. It is absolutely disturbing. And, and it looks like the teddy bear below that has an eyeball on its bicep. <laughs> like. Uh, don't don't show this to your kids before they go to bed. The other one, uh, and I, I'm kicking myself now for not having the name ready, uh, doesn't include the images. Uh, thankfully, you know, I, I think it was inspired to say, "Hey, we can not only use AI to generate the story, but we can use it to generate images to go along with the story." But then they they um, I, I can't believe they even use these on their web page. You know, Dude, they, they went brutal. They went with the one that butchers faces and Ru give it nothing Ruby, but, but faces. Ruby and the teddy bear uh, is is bizarre. He's got a he's a he's apparently the teddy bear is skydiving and his on the front chest of his um, parachute or vest he's wearing looks like a squirrel or a or a rat made out of metal. It is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. But I don't know if you noticed this, Adrian, too, and you're and you're playing with it. If you scroll between. Um, pages, 
the images are not the same every time. They actually don't match the image to the words very well. And I think they've oh, got a yeah. bug and the images don't always stay properly set up. Yeah, so <clears throat> should we create some uh, Enterprise Security Weekly stories? Absolutely, 100%. Absolutely. And I'm sure if we use our names, they might even be able to find some image, images of us to, uh, to mutilate. Uh, that, that'll that'll be our our gift to our listeners is uh, we'll, we'll create uh, may, maybe some security weekly Christmas stories with this with this tool. Yeah, I'm I'm in. Sounds fantastic. I'll see if I can rope uh, Paul into it. Also, <laughs> uh, maybe maybe do it for some of the other shows. I think it'd be fun. Uh, and, and our last squirrel story here is Cocaine Bear, and the reason Cocaine Bear is here. <laughs> Um, apparently a lot of people have heard of this. I, I've never heard of this, uh, but Knoxville is involved here, which is the reason I, I threw it in here. A movie it, that I'm sure is going to be very, very loosely based on, on the true story, uh, is coming out February 24th. And, uh, one of Ray Liotta, uh, Liotta's, uh, last performances before he passed away. And, um, and, and yeah, it, about a drug smuggler that threw a bag of cocaine out of a plane and a, and a bear got into it. And it, they found the, the bear later that, that had apparently eaten, I forget how many pounds of co- cocaine and just o- overdosed from, from all yes, the cocaine. Yes. The, premer, the premise on Wikipedia is amazing. After ingesting a duffel bag full of cocaine, an American black bear goes on a murderous rampage in a small Kentucky ca- Kentucky town where a group of locals and tourists must join forces in order to survive his attack. Uh, that it's sounds a pretty amazing. It's a who's who of, of people. <laughs> Carrie Russell, O'Shea Jackson Jr., uh, I mean, literally, like Ray Liotta. Uh, th- there's some really big-name people in this movie. It is a must-watch, uh, absolute horror fest. I cannot wait for this to come out. Yeah, I know Shea Jackson Jr. is Ice Cube's son, who's yes. been in other movies as well. So that, that'll yeah. be pretty interesting. Yeah, he was in the uh, that NWA biopic a while back. Which was fantastic. Was an excellent movie, absolutely. Yeah, Cocaine Bear. I'm a big fan of Cocaine Bear. I, I want a t-shirt that's the Cocaine Bear um, cover art. I just want that on my t-shirt. It just says Cocaine Bear. So, so the so the bear was actually in North Georgia, um, but the guy. So what the guy does is he 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 drops this bag out. Uh, I don't know if there he wanted to lose weight or if he planned to to go back and pick it up later. But him and an accomplice uh, jump out of the plane, uh, both experienced skydivers, uh, and, and he's got like another. I don't know how many kilograms of cocaine, uh, 75 pounds uh, in another duffel bag with him. And something goes wrong with his parachute and he face plants in a driveway in Knoxville, Tennessee, wearing <laughs> Gucci, Gucci loafers, a bulletproof vest, night vision goggles, 75 pounds of cocaine, $4,500 in cash. Th- this is in 1985, by the way. This is long, long time ago. Uh, knives and two pistols. Just lands in somebody's driveway. I, I I don't even where to be where to begin with this. So the coolest part is this was directed and co-produced by Elizabeth Banks, 
who played Effie Trinket in The Hunger Games. Uh, she was in Pitch Perfect, the film series, Pitch Perfect 2, Charlie's oh, Angels. Yeah. Like, a very well-known actress, has done a ton of stuff. She directed and co-produced this uh, wonderful, uh, I don't even know where to begin to call it a movie. Yep. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to get together and I'll, I'll go see it together somehow. We can do this a, probably we can do has, a uh, This is probably the follow-up on build-up since uh, Snakes on a Plane. A hundred percent. We can do a, a party, a watch party using the, the online sharing stuff. We should do that. Yeah, yeah, we should. Uh, we, we, could, uh, we could live stream that. We could make that a security weekly thing. <laughs> I'm in. Count me in. I love that idea. I'm in. All right, Sam Gus, let's make this happen. <laughs> Renee. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Tyler, Katie, and Sean for joining me today. It's lovely having uh, all three of you today. Nobody's going to say anything. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, Adrian. Thank you. Thank you, Adrian. Happy Antarctica Day. And a big thanks to everybody for watching or listening to this week's episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. Uh, We've got a few more episodes before we wrap up the year. Uh, So keep an ear out for them and we'll see you then.